Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Seedling of Mars by Clark Ashton Smith 1. It was in the fall of 1947, three days prior to the annual football game between Stanford and the University of California, that the strange visitor from outer space landed in the middle of the huge stadium at Berkeley where the game was to be held. Descending with peculiar deliberation, it was seen and pointed out by multitudes of people in the towns that border on San Francisco Bay, in Berkeley, Oakland, Alameda, and San Francisco itself. Gleaming with a fiery, copperish golden light, it floated down from the cloudless autumn azure, dropping in a sort of slow spiral above the stadium. It was utterly unlike any known type of aircraft, and was nearly a hundred feet in length. The general shape was ovoid, and also more or less angular, with a surface divided into scores of variant planes, and with many diamond ports of purplish material different from that of which the body was constructed. Even at first glance, it suggested the inventive genius and workmanship of some alien world, of a people whose ideas of mechanical symmetry have been conditioned by evolutional necessities and sense faculties divergent from ours. However, when the queer vessel had come to rest in the amphitheatre, many conflicting theories regarding its origin and the purpose of its descent were promulgated in the Bay Cities. There were those who feared the invasion of some foreign foe, and who thought that the odd ship was the harbinger of a long-plotted attack from the Russian and Chinese Soviets, or even from Germany, whose intentions were still suspected. And many of those who postulated an ultraplanetary origin were also apprehensive, deeming that the visitant was perhaps hostile, and might mark the beginning of some terrible incursion from outer worlds. In the meanwhile, utterly silent and immobile and without sign of life or occupancy, the vessel reposed in the stadium, where staring crowds began to gather about it. These crowds, however, were soon dispersed by order of the civic authorities, since the nature and intentions of the stranger were alike doubtful and undeclared. The stadium was closed to the public, and, in case of inimical manifestations, machine guns were mounted on the higher seats with a company of marines in attendance, and bombing planes hovered in readiness to drop their lethal freight on the shining, coppery bulk. The intensest interest was felt by the whole scientific fraternity, and a large group of professors, of chemists, metallurgists, astronomers, astrophysicists, and biologists was organized to visit and examine the unknown object. When, on the afternoon following its landing, the local observatories issued a bulletin saying that the vessel had been sighted approaching the Earth from translunar space on the previous night, the fact of its non-terrestrial genesis became established beyond dispute in the eyes of most, and controversy reigned as to whether it had come from Venus, Mars, Mercury, or one of the superior planets, or whether, perhaps, it was a wanderer from another solar system than our own. 
But of course the nearer planets were favoured in this dispute by the majority, especially Mars, for, as nearly as those who had watched it could determine, the line of the vessel's approach would have formed a trajectory with the red planet. All that day, while arguments seethed, while extras with luridly speculative and fantastic headlines were issued by the local papers, as well as by the press of the whole civilized world, while public sentiment was divided between apprehension and curiosity, and the guarding marines and aviators continued to watch for signs of possible hostility, the unidentified vessel maintained its initial stillness and silence. Telescopes and glasses were trained upon it from the hills above the stadium, but even these disclosed little regarding its character. Those who studied it saw that the numerous ports were made of a vitreous material, more or less transparent, but nothing stirred behind them, and the glimpses of queer machinery which they afforded in the ship's interior were meaningless to the watchers. One port, larger than the rest, was believed to be a sort of door or manhole, but no one came to open it, and behind it was a weird array of motionless rods and coils and pistons, which debarred the vision from further view. Doubtless, it was thought, the occupants were no less cautious of their alien milieu than the people of the Bay region were suspicious of the vessel. Perhaps they feared to reveal themselves to human eyes. Perhaps they were doubtful of the terrene atmosphere and its effect upon themselves. Or perhaps they were merely lying in wait and planning some devilish outburst with unconceived weapons or engineries of destruction. Apart from the fears felt by some, and the wonderment and speculation of others, a third division of public sentiment soon began to crystallize. In collegiate circles and among sport lovers, the feeling was that the strange vessel had taken an unwarrantable liberty in pre-empting the stadium, especially at a time so near to the forthcoming athletic event. A petition for its removal was circulated, and presented to the city authorities. The great metallic hull, it was felt, no matter whence it had come or why, should not be allowed to interfere with anything so sacrosanct and of such prime importance as a football game. However, in spite of the turmoil it had created, the vessel refused to move by so much as the fraction of an inch. Many began to surmise that the occupants had been overcome by the conditions of their transit through space, or perhaps they had died, unable to endure the gravity and atmospheric pressure of the earth. It was decided to leave the vessel unapproached until morning of the next day, when the Committee of Investigation would visit it. During that afternoon and night, scientists from many states were speeding toward California by airplane and rocket ship, to be on hand in time for this event. It was felt advisable to limit the number of this committee. Among the fortunate savants who had been selected was John Gaylard, assistant astronomer at the Mount Wilson Observatory. Gaylard represented the more radical and freely speculative trend of scientific thought, and had become well known for his theories concerning the inhabitability of the inferior planets, particularly Mars and Venus. He had long championed the idea of intelligent and highly organized life on these worlds, 
and had even published more than one treatise dealing with the subject, in which he had elaborated his theories with much specific detail. His excitement at the news of the strange vessel was intense. He was one of those who had sighted the gleaming and unclassifiable speck far out in space, beyond the orbit of the moon, in the late hours of the previous night, and he had felt even then a premonition of its true character. Others of the party were free and open-minded in their attitude, but no one was more deeply and vitally interested than Gaylard. Godfrey Stilton, professor of astronomy at the University of California, also on the committee, might have been chosen as the very antithesis of Gaylard in his views and tendencies. Narrow, dogmatic, sceptical of all that could not be proved by line and rule, scornful of all that lay beyond the bourne of a straight empiricism, he was loath to admit the ultra-terrene origin of the vessel, or even the possibility of organic life on any other world than the earth. Several of his confreres belonged to the same intellectual type. Apart from these two men and their fellow scientists, the party included three newspaper reporters, as well as the local chief of police, William Polson, and the mayor of Berkeley, James Gresham, since it was felt that the forces of government should be represented. The entire committee comprised forty men, and a number of expert machinists equipped with acetylene torches and cutting tools were held in reserve outside the stadium in case it should be found necessary to open the vessel by force. At nine a.m., the investigators entered the stadium and approached the glittering, multi-angled object. Many were conscious of the thrill that attends some unforeknowable danger, but more were animated by the keenest curiosity and by feelings of extreme wonderment. Gaylord, in especial, felt himself in the presence of ultra-mundane mystery, and marvelled as he neared the coppery golden bulk. His feeling amounted almost to an actual vertigo, such as would be experienced by one who gazes athwart unfathomable gulfs upon the arcanic secrets and the wit-transcending wonders of a foreign sphere. It seemed to him that he stood upon the verge between the determinate and the incommensurable, betwixt the finite and the infinite. Others of the group, in lesser degree, were possessed by similar emotions and even the hard-headed, unimaginative Stilton was disturbed by a queer uneasiness, which, being minded as he was, he assigned to the weather, or a touch of liver. The strange ship reposed in utter stillness, as before. The fears of those who half expected some deadly ambush were allayed as they drew near, and the hopes of those who looked for a more amicable manifestation of living occupancy, were ungratified. The party gathered before the main port, which, like all the others, was made in the form of a great diamond. It was several feet above their heads, in a vertical angle or plane of the hull, and they stood staring through its mauve transparency on the unknown, intricate mechanisms beyond, that were coloured as if by the rich panes of some cathedral window. All were in doubt as to what should be done, for it seemed evident that the occupants of the vessel, if alive and conscious, were in no hurry to reveal themselves to human scrutiny. 
The delegation resolved to wait a few minutes before calling on the services of the assembled mechanics with their acetylene torches, and while waiting they walked about and inspected the metal of the walls, which seemed to be an alloy of copper and red gold, tempered to a preternatural hardness by some process unfamiliar to telluric metallurgy. There was no sign of jointure in the myriad planes and facets, and the whole enormous shell, apart from its lucid ports, might well have been wrought from a single sheet of the rich alloy. Gaylard stood peering upward at the main port, while his companion sauntered about the vessel, talking and debating among themselves. Somehow, he felt an intuition that something strange and miraculous was about to happen. And when the great port began to open slowly, without visible agency, dividing into two valves that slid away at the sides, the thrill which he experienced was not altogether one of surprise. Nor was he surprised when a sort of metal escalator, consisting of narrow stairs that were little more than rungs, descended step by step from the opening, and came down to the ground at his very feet. The port had opened, and the escalator had unfolded in silence, with no faintest creak or clang, but others beside Gaylard had perceived the occurrence, and all hastened in great excitement, and gathered before the steps. Contrary to their not unnatural expectations, no one emerged from the vessel, and they could see little more of the interior than had been visible through the shut valves. They looked for some exotic ambassador from Mars, some gorgeous and bizarre plenipotentiary from Venus to descend the queer steps, and the silence and solitude and mechanical adroitness of it all were uncanny. It seemed that the great ship was a living entity, and possessed a brain and nerves of its own, hidden in the metal-sheathed interior. The open portal and stairs offered an obvious invitation, and after some hesitancy, the scientists made up their minds to enter. Some were still fearful of a trap, and five of the forty men wearily decided to remain without, but all the others were more powerfully drawn by curiosity and investigative ardour, and one by one they climbed the stairs and filed into the vessel. They found the interior even more provocative of wonder than the outer walls had been. It was quite roomy, and was divided into several compartments of ample size, two of which, at the vessel's centre, were lined with low couches covered by soft, lustrous, pileated fabrics of opalescent grey. The others, as well as the antechamber behind the entrance, were filled with machinery whose motive force and method of operation were alike obscure to the most expert among the investigators. Rare metals and odd alloys, some of them difficult to classify, had been used in the construction of this machinery. Near the entrance there was a sort of tripodal table or instrument board, whose queer rows of levers and buttons were no less mysterious than the ciphers of some telic cryptogram. The entire ship was seemingly deserted, with no trace of human or extraplanetary life. Wandering through the apartments, and marvelling at the unsolved mechanical enigmas which surrounded them, 
The delegation members were not aware that the broad valves of the main port had closed behind them with the same stealthiness and silence that had marked their opening. Nor did they hear the warning shouts of the five men who had remained outside. Their first intimation of anything untoward came from a sudden lurching and lifting of the vessel. Startled, they looked at the window-like ports, and saw through the violet, vitreous panes the whirling and falling away of those innumerable rows of seats which ringed the immense stadium. The alien spaceship, with no visible hand to control it, was rising rapidly in air with a sort of spiral movement. It was bearing away to some unknown world the entire delegation of hardy scientists that had boarded it, together with the Berkeley mayor and chief of police and the three privileged reporters who had thought to obtain an ultra-sensational scoop for their respective journals. 2. The situation was wholly without precedent, and was more than astounding, and the reactions of the various men, though quite divergent in some ways, were all marked by amazement and consternation. Many were too stunned and confounded to realize all the implications or possibilities. Others were frankly terrified, and others still were indignant. This is an outrage, thundered Stilton, as soon as he had recovered a little from his primary surprise. There were similar exclamations from others of the same temperament as he, all of whom felt emphatically that something should be done about the situation, and that someone, who unfortunately they could not locate or identify, should be made to suffer for such unparalleled audacity. Gaylard, though he shared in the general amazement, was thrilled to the bottom of his heart by a sense of unearthly and prodigious adventure, by a premonition of interplanetary enterprise. He felt a mystic certainty that he and the others had embarked on a voyage to some world untrodden heretofore by man, that the strange vessel had descended to earth and had opened its port to invite them for this very purpose— that an esoteric and remote power was guiding its every movement and was drawing it to an appointed destination. Vast, inchoate images of unbounded space and splendor and interstellar strangeness filled his mind, and unforlimnable pictures rose to dazzle his vision from an ultra-telluric born. In some incomprehensible way, he knew that his lifelong desire to penetrate the mysteries of distant spheres would soon be gratified, and he, if not his companions, was resigned from the very first to that bizarre abduction and captivity in the soaring space flyer. Discussing their position with much volubility and vociferousness, the assembled savants rushed to the various ports and stared down at the world they were leaving. In a mere fraction of time, they had risen to a cloud-like altitude. The whole region about San Francisco Bay, as well as the verges of the Pacific Ocean, lay stretched below them like an immense relief map, and they could already see the curvature of the horizon, which seemed to reel and dip as they went upward. It was an awesome and magnificent prospect, 
but the growing acceleration of the vessel, which had now gained a speed more than equal to that of the rocket ships which were used at that time for circling the globe in the stratosphere, soon compelled them to relinquish their standing position and seek the refuge of the convenient couches. Conversation also was abandoned, for everyone began to experience an almost intolerable constriction and oppression which held their bodies as if with clamps of unyielding metal. However, when they had all laid themselves on the pileated couches, they felt a mysterious relief, whose source they could not ascertain. It seemed that a force emanated from those couches, which alleviated in some way the leaden stress of increased gravity due to the acceleration, and made it possible for the men to endure the terrific speed with which the space flyer was leaving the Earth's atmosphere and gravitational zone. Presently, they found themselves able to stand up and walk around once more. Their sensations, on the whole, were almost normal, though in contradistinction to the initial crushing weight, there was now an odd lightness which compelled them to shorten their steps to avoid colliding with the walls and machinery. The weight was less than it would have been on earth, but the loss was not enough to produce discomfort or sickness, and was accompanied by a sort of exhilaration. They perceived that they were breathing a thin, rarefied and bracing air, not dissimilar to that of terrene mountaintops, though permeated by one or two unfamiliar elements that gave it a touch of nitric sharpness. This air tended to increase the exhilaration, and to quicken their respiration and pulses a little. "'This is damnable!' spluttered the indignant Stilton, as soon as he found that the powers of locomotion and breathing were reasonably subject to control. "'It is contrary to all law, decency and order. The U.S. government should do something about it immediately.' "'I fear,' observed Gaylord that we are now beyond the jurisdiction of the U.S., as well as that of all other mundane governments. No plane or rocket ship could reach the air strata through which we are passing, and we will penetrate the interstellar ether in a moment or so. Presumably, this vessel is returning to the world from which it came, and we are going with it. Absurd! Preposterous! Outrageous! Stilton's voice was a roar, slightly subdued and attenuated by the fine, atmospheric medium. "'I've always maintained that space travel was utterly chimerical. Even Earth scientists haven't been able to invent a spaceship, and it is ridiculous to assume that highly intelligent life capable of such invention could exist on other planets.' "'How, then?' queried Gaylord. "'Do you account for our situation?' The vessel is of human origin, of course. It must be a new and ultra-powerful type of rocket ship, devised by the Soviets, and under automatic or radio control, which will probably land us in Siberia after travelling in the highest layers of the stratosphere. Gaylord, smiling with gentle irony, felt that he could safely abandon the argument leaving Stilton to stare wrathfully through a port at the receding bulk of the world, on which the whole of North America, together with Alaska and the Hawaiian Islands, had begun to declare their coastal outlines, he joined others of the party 
in a renewed investigation of the ship. Some still maintain that living beings must be hidden on board, but a close search of every apartment, corner, and cranny resulted as before. Abandoning this objective, the men began to re-examine the machinery, whose motive power and method of operation they were still unable to fathom. Utterly perplexed and mystified, they watched the instrument board, on which certain of the keys would move occasionally, as if shifted by an unseen hand. These changes of alignment were always followed by some change in the vessel's speed, or by a slight alteration of its course, possibly to avoid collision with meteoric fragments. Though nothing definite could be learned about the propelling mechanism, certain negative facts were soon established. The method of propulsion was plainly non-explosive, for there were no roaring and flaming discharge of rockets. All were silent, gliding and vibrationless, with nothing to betoken mechanical activity other than the shifting of the keys and the glowing of certain intricate coils and pistons with a strange blue light. This light, cold as the scintillation of arctic ice, was not electric in its nature, but suggested rather some unknown form of radioactivity. After a while, Stilton joined those who were grouped about the instrument board, still muttering his resentment of the unlawful and unscientific indignity to which he had been subjected, he watched the keys for a minute or so, and then, seizing one of them suddenly with his fingers, he tried to experiment with the idea of gaining control of the vessel's movements. To his amazement, and that of his confreres, the key was immovable. Stilton strained till the blue vein stood out on his hand, and sweat poured in rills from his baldish brow. Then, one by one, he tried others of the keys, tugging desperately, but always with the same result. Evidently, the board was locked against other control than that of the unknown pilot. Still persisting in his endeavour, Stilton came to a key of larger size and different shape from the rest. Touching it, he screamed in agony, and withdrew his fingers from the strange object with some difficulty. The key was cold, as if it had been steeped in the absolute zero of space. It had actually seemed to sear his fingers with its extreme iciness. After that, he desisted, and made no further effort to interfere with the workings of the vessel. Gaylard, after watching this interlude, had wandered back to one of the main apartments. Peering out once more from his seat on a couch of supernal softness and resilience, he beheld a breathtaking spectacle. The whole world, a great, glowing, many-tinted globe, was swimming abreast of the flyer in the black and star-lined gulf. The awfulness of the undirectioned deeps the unthinkable isolation of infinitude rushed upon him, and he felt sick and giddy for a few instants with the shock of realization, and was swept by an overwhelming panic, limitless and without name. Then, strangely, the terror passed, in a dawning exultation at the prospect of the novel voyage through unsounded heavens, 
and toward untrodden shores. Oblivious of danger, forgetful of the dread alienation from man's accustomed environment, he gave himself up to a magical conviction of marvellous adventure and unique destiny to come. Others, however, were less capable of orientating themselves to these bizarre and terrific circumstances, pale and horror-stricken, with a sense of irredeemable loss, of all-encompassing peril and giddy confusion. They watched the receding earth from whose comfortable purlieus they had been removed so inexplicably and with such awful suddenness. Many were speechless with fear, as they realized more clearly their impotence in the grip of an all-powerful and incognizable force. Some chattered loudly and incoherently, in an effort to conceal their perturbation. The three reporters lamented their inability to communicate with the journals they represented. James Gresham, the mayor, and William Polson, the chief of police, were nonplussed and altogether at a loss as to what to do or think, in circumstances that seemed to nullify completely their wanted civic importance. And the scientists, as might have been expected, were divided into two main camps. The more radical and adventurous were more or less prone to welcome whatever might be in store for the sake of new knowledge, while the others accepted their fate with varying degrees of reluctance, of protest and apprehension. Several hours went by, and the moon, a ball of dazzling desolation in the great abyss, had been left behind with the waning earth. The flyer was speeding alone through the cosmic vastness in a universe whose grandeur was a revelation even to the astronomers, familiar as they were with the magnitudes and multitudes of suns, nebulae, and galaxies. The thirty-five men were being estranged from their natal planet and hurled across unthinkable immensity at a speed far beyond that of any solar body or satellite. It was hard to estimate the precise velocity, but some idea of it could be gained from the rapidity with which the Sun and the nearer planets Mars, Mercury, and Venus changed their relative positions. They seemed almost to fly athwart the heavens like so many jugglers' balls. It was plain that some sort of artificial gravity prevailed in the ship, for the weightlessness that would otherwise have been inevitable in outer space— was not experienced at any time. Also, the scientists found that they were being supplied with air from certain oddly shapen tanks. Evidently, too, there was some kind of hidden heating system, or mode of insulation against the interspatial zero, for the temperature of the vessel's interior remained constant, at about sixty-five or seventy degrees. Looking at their watches— some of the party found that it was now noon by terrestrial time, though even the most unimaginative were impressed by the absurdity of the twenty-four-hour division of day and night amid the eternal sunlight of the void. Many began to feel hungry and thirsty, and to voice their appetites aloud. Not long after, as if in response, like the service given by a good table d'hote or restaurant, Certain panels in the inner metal wall, hitherto unnoticed by the savants, 
opened noiselessly before their eyes, and revealed a series of long buffets, on which were curious wide-mouthed ewers containing water and deep, tureen-like plates filled to the rim with unknown foodstuffs. Too astonished to comment at much length on this new miracle, the delegation members proceeded to sample the viands and beverage thus offered. Stilton, still morosely indignant, refused to taste them, but was alone in his abstention. The water was quite drinkable, though slightly alkaline, as if it had come from desert wells, and the food, a sort of reddish paste, concerning whose nature and composition the chemists were doubtful, served to appease the pangs of hunger, even if it was not especially seductive to the palate. After the earthmen had partaken of this refection, the panels closed as silently and unobtrusively as they had opened. The vessel plunged on through space, hour after hour, till it became obvious to Gaylard and his fellow astronomers that it was either heading directly for the planet Mars, or would pass very close to Mars on its way to some further orb. The red world, with its familiar markings, which they had watched so often through observatory telescopes, and over whose character and causation they had long puzzled, began to loom before them, and swelled upon the heavens with thaumaturgic swiftness. Then they perceived a signal deceleration in the speed of the flyer, which continued straight on toward the coppery planet, as if its goal were concealed amid the labyrinth of obscure and singular mottlings. And it became impossible to doubt any longer that Mars was their destination. Gaylard, and those who were more or less akin to him in their interests and proclivities, were stirred by an awesome and sublime expectancy as the vessel neared the alien world. Then it began to float gently down above an exotic landscape, in which the well-known seas and canals, enormous with their closeness, could plainly be recognized. Soon they approached the surface of the ruddy planet, spiraling through its cloudless and mistless atmosphere, while the deceleration slowed to a speed that was little more than that of a falling parachute. Mars surrounded them with its straight, monotonous horizons, nearer than those of Earth, and displaying neither mountains nor any salient elevation of hills or hummocks, and soon they hung above it at an altitude of a half mile or less. Here the vessel seemed to halt and poise without descending further. Below them now they saw a desert of low-ridged and yellowish-red sand intersected by one of the so-called canals, which ran sinuously away on either side to disappear beyond the horizon. The scientists studied this terrain in ever-growing amazement and excitement, as the true nature of the veining canal was forced upon their perception. It was not water, as many had heretofore presumed, but a mass of pale green vegetation, of vast and serrate leaves or fronds, all of which seemed to emanate from a single crawling flesh-coloured stalk, several hundred feet in diameter, and with swollen nodular joints at half-mile intervals. Aside from this anomalous and supergigantic vine, there was no trace of life, 
either animal or vegetable, in the whole landscape, and the extent of the crawling stalk, which netted the entire visible terrain, but seemed by its form and characteristics to be the mere tendril of some vaster growth, was a thing to stagger the preconceptions of mundane botany. 3. Many of the scientists were almost stupefied with astonishment as they gazed down from the violet ports on this titanic creeper. More than ever, the journalists mourned the staggering headlines with which they would be unable, under existing circumstances, to endow their respective dailies. Gresham and Polson felt that there was something vaguely illegal about the existence of anything so monstrous in the way of a plant form, and the scientific disapproval felt by Stilton and his academically-minded confrères was most pronounced. Outrageous! Unheard of! Ludicrous! muttered Stilton. This thing defies the most elementary laws of botany. There is no conceivable precedent for it. Gaylard, who stood beside him, was so wrapped in his contemplation of the novel growth that he scarcely heard Stilton's comment. The conviction of vast and sublime adventure which had grown upon him ever since the beginning of that bizarre, stupendous voyage, was now confirmed by a clear daylight certitude. He could give no definite form or coherence to the feeling that possessed him. But he was overwhelmed by the intimation of present marvel and future miracle, and the intuition of strange, tremendous revelations to come. Few of the party cared to speak, or would have been capable of speech. All that had happened to them during the past few hours, and all on which they now gazed, was so far beyond the scope of human action and cognition, that the normal exercise of their faculties was more or less inhibited by the struggle for adjustment to these unique conditions. After they had watched the gargantuan vine for a minute or two, the savants became aware that the vessel was moving again, this time in a lateral direction. Flying very slowly and deliberately, it followed the course of the creeper toward what seemed to be the west of Mars, above which a small and pallid sun was descending, through the dingy, burnt-out sky, and casting a thin, chilly light athwart the desolate land. The men were overpoweringly conscious of an intelligent determination behind all that was occurring, and the sense of this remote, Unknowable supervision and control was stronger in Gaylard even than in the others. No one could doubt that every movement of the vessel was timed and predestined, and Gaylard felt that the slowness with which it followed the progress of the great stalk was calculated to give the scientific delegation ample opportunity for the study of their new environment, and, in particular, for observation of the growth itself. In vain, however, did they watch their shifting milieu for aught that could denote the presence of organic forms of a human, non-human, or preterhuman type, such as might imaginably exist on Mars? Of course, only such entities, it was thought, could have built, dispatched, and guided by some kind of automatic or radio control the vessel in which they were held captive. The flyer went on for at least an hour, traversing an immense territory in which, after many miles, 
The initial sandy desolation yielded place to a sort of swamp. Here, where sluggish waters webbed the marly soil, the winding creeper swelled to incredible proportions, with lush leaves that embowered the marshy ground for almost a mile on either side of the overlooming stalk. Here, too, the foliage assumed a richer and more vivid greenness, fraught with sublime vital exuberance, and the stem itself displayed an indescribable succulence, together with a shining and glossy luster, a bloom that was weirdly and incongruously suggestive of well-nourished flesh. The thing seemed to palpitate at regular and rhythmic intervals beneath the eyes of the observers, like a living entity, and in places there were queerly shaped nodes or attachments on the stem, whose purpose no one could imagine. Gaylard called the attention of Stilton to the strange throbbing that was noticeable in the plant, a throbbing which seemed to communicate itself even to the hundred-foot leaves, so that they trembled like plumes. Hm, said Stilton, shaking his head with an air of mingled disbelief and disgust. That palpitation is altogether impossible. There must be something wrong with our eyes, some uh, disturbance of focus brought on by the velocity of our voyage, perhaps. Either that, or there is some peculiar refractive quality in the atmosphere, which gives the appearance of movement to stable objects. Gaylard refrained from calling his attention to the fact that this imputed phenomenon of visual disorder or aerial refraction was confined in its application entirely to the plant, and did not extend its range to the bordering landscape. Soon after this, the vessel came to an enormous branching of the plant, and the earthmen discovered that the stalk they had been following was merely one of three that ramified from a vaster stem to intersect the boggy soil at widely divergent angles and vanish athwart opposing horizons. The junction was marked by a mountainous double node that bore a bizarre likeness to human hips. Here, the throbbing was stronger and more perceptible than ever, and odd veinings and mottlings of a reddish colour were visible on the pale surface of the stem. The savants became more and more excited by the unexampled magnitude and singular characteristics of this remarkable growth. But revelations of a still more extraordinary nature were in store. After poising a moment above the monstrous joint, the vessel flew on at a higher elevation with increased speed along the main stem, which extended for an incalculable distance into the occident of Mars. It revealed fresh ramifications at variable intervals, and growing ever larger and more luxuriant as it penetrated marshy regions which were doubtless the residual ooze of a sunken sea. "'My God, the thing must surround the entire planet,' said one of the reporters in an awed voice. "'It looks that way,' Gaylard assented gravely. "'We must be travelling almost in a line with the equator, and we have already followed the plant for hundreds of miles. From what we have seen, it would seem that the Martian canals are merely its branchings,' and perhaps the areas mapped as seas by astronomers are masses of its foliage. "'I can't understand it,' grumbled Stilton. "'The damn thing is utterly contrary to science, and 
against nature. It oughtn't to exist in any rational or conceivable cosmos. Well, said Gaylard, a little tartly, it does exist, and I don't see how you're going to get away from it. Apparently, too, it is the only vegetable form on the planet. At least so far we have failed to find anything else of the sort. After all, why shouldn't the floral life of Mars be concentrated in a single type? And why shouldn't there be just one example of that type? It shows a marvellous economy on the part of nature. There is no reason at all for assuming that the vegetable or even the animal kingdoms on other worlds would exhibit the same fission and multiplicity that are shown on earth. Stilton, as he listened to this unorthodox argument, glared at Gaylard like a Mohammedan at some errant infidel, but was either too angry or too disgusted for further speech. The attention of the scientists was now drawn to a greenish area along the line of their flight, covering many square miles. Here they saw that the main stem had put out a multitude of tendrils, whose foliage hid the underlying soil like a thick forest. Even as Gaylard had postulated, the origin of the sea-like areas on Mars was now explained. Forty or fifty miles beyond this mass of foliation, they came to another that was even more extensive. The vessel soared to a great height, and they looked down on the realm-wide expanse of leafage. In its middle they discerned a circular node, leagues in extent, and rising like a rounded alp from which emanated in all directions the planet-circling stems of the weird growth. Not only the size, but also certain features of the immense node were provocative of utter dumbfoundment in the beholders. It was like the head of some gargantuan cuttlefish, and the stalks that ran away on all sides were suggestive of tentacles. And, strangest of all, the men descried in the centre of the head two enormous masses, clear and lucent like water, which combine the size of lakes with the form and appearance of optic organs. The whole plant palpitated like a breathing bosom, and the awe with which the involuntary explorer surveyed it was incommunicable by human words. All were compelled to recognise that even aside from its unparalleled proportions and habit of growth, the thing was in no sense aliable with any mundane botanic genera. And to Gaylard, as well as to the others, the thought occurred that it was a sentient organism, and that the throbbing mass on which they now gazed was the brain or central ganglion of its unknown nervous system. The vast eyes, holding the sunlight like colossal dewdrops, seemed to return their scrutiny with an unreadable and superhuman intelligence, and Gaylard was obsessed by the feeling that preternatural knowledge and wisdom bordering upon omniscience were hidden in those hyaline depths. The vessel began to descend, and settled vertically down in a sort of valley close to the mountainous head, where the foliation of two departing stems had left a patch of clear land. It was like a forest glade, with impenetrable woods on three sides, and a high crag on the fourth. Here, for the first time during the experience of its occupants, the flyer came to rest on the soil of Mars, floating gently down without jar or vibration, 
and almost immediately after its landing, the valves of the main port unfolded, and the metal stairway descended to the ground, in obvious readiness to disembark the human passengers. One by one, some with caution and timidity, others with adventuresome eagerness, the men filed out of the vessel and started to inspect their surroundings. They found that the Martian air differed little if at all from that which they had been breathing in the space flyer, and at that hour, with the sun still pouring into the strange valley from the west, the temperature was moderately warm. It was an outre and fantastic scene, and the details were unlike those of any Tellurian landscape. Underfoot was a soft, resilient soil, like a moist loess, wholly devoid of grass, lichens, fungi, or any minor plant forms. The foliage of the mammoth vine, with horizontal fronds of a baroque type, feathery and voluminous, hung about the glade to an altitudinous height like that of ancient evergreens, and quivered in the windless air with the pulsation of the stems. Close at hand there rose the vast, flesh-coloured wall of the central plant head, which sloped upward like a hill toward the hidden eyes, and was no doubt deeply embedded and rooted in the Martian soil. Stepping close to the living mass, the earthmen saw that its surface was netted with millions of wrinkle-like reticulations, and was filled with great pores resembling those of animal skin, beneath some extra-powerful microscope. They conducted their inspection in an awestruck silence, and for some time no one felt able to voice the extraordinary conclusions to which most of them had now been driven. The emotions of Gaylard were almost religious as he contemplated the scarce imaginable amplitude of this ultra-terrene life-form, which seemed to him to exhibit attributes nearer to those of divinity than he had found in any other manifestation of the vital principle. In it he saw the combined apotheosis of the animal and the vegetable. The thing was so perfect and complete and all-sufficing, so independent of lesser life in its world-enmeshing growth. It poured forth the sense of Aeonian longevity, perhaps of immortality. And to what arcanic and cosmic consciousness might it not have attained during the cycles of its development? What supernormal senses and faculties might it not possess? What powers and potentialities beyond the achievement of more limited, more finite forms? In a lesser degree, many of his companions were aware of similar feeling. Almost in the presence of this portentous and sublime anomaly, they forgot the unsolved enigma of the space vessel, and their voyage across the heretofore unbridged immensities. But Stilton— and his brother conservatives were highly scandalized by the inexplicable nature of it all, and if they had been religiously minded, they would have expressed their sense of violation and outrage by saying that the monstrous plant, as well as the unexampled events in which they had taken an unwilling part, were tainted with the most grievous heresy and flagrant blasphemy. Gresham, who had been eyeing his surroundings with a pompous and puzzled solemnity, was the first to break the silence. 
I wonder where the local government hangs out, he queried. Who the hell is in power here, anyway? Hey, Mr. Gaylard, you astronomers know a lot about Mars. Ain't there a U.S. consulate somewhere in this godforsaken hole? Gaylard was compelled to inform him that there was no consular service on Mars, and also that the form of government on that planet, as well as its official location, was still an open problem. However, he went on, I shouldn't be surprised to learn that we are now in the presence of the sole and supreme ruler of the Martian realms. Ha! Huh. I don't see anyone, grunted Gresham with a troubled frown, as he surveyed the quivering masses of foliage and the alp-like head of the great plant. The import of Gaylard's observation was too far beyond his intellectual orbit. Gaylard had been inspecting the flesh-tinted wall of the head with supreme and fascinated interest. At some distance to one side, he perceived certain peculiar outgrowths, either shrunken or vestigial, like drooping and flaccid horns. They were large as a man's body, and might at some time have been much larger. It seemed as if the plant had put them forth for some unknown purpose, and had allowed them to wither when the purpose had been accomplished. They still retained an uncanny suggestion of semi-human parts and members, of strange appendages, half-arms and half-tentacles, as if they had been modelled from some exemplar of undiscovered Martian animal life. Just below them, on the ground, Gaylard noticed a litter of queer metallic tools, with rough sheets and formless ingots of the same coppery material from which the space flyer had been constructed. 4. Somehow, the spot suggested an abandoned shipyard, though there were no scaffoldings such as would ordinarily be used in the building of a vessel. An odd inkling of the truth arose in Gaylard's mind, as he surveyed the metal remnants but he was too thoroughly bemused and overawed by the wonder of all that had occurred, as well as by all he had ascertained or surmised, to communicate his inferences to the other savants. In the meanwhile, the entire party had wandered about the glade, which comprised an area of several hundred yards. One of the astronomers, Philip Colton, who had made a sideline of botany, was examining the serried foliage of the supergigantic creepers with a mingling of utmost interest and perplexity. The fronds, or branches, were lined with pinnate needles covered by a long silk pubescence, and each of these needles was four feet in length by three or four inches in thickness, possibly with a hollow and tubular structure. The fronds grew in level array from the main creeper, filling the air like a horizontal forest, and reaching to the very ground in close, imbricated order. Colton took a jackknife from his pocket, and tried to cut a section from one of the pinnate leaves. At the first touch of the keen blade, the whole frond recoiled violently beyond his reach, and then swinging back it dealt him a tremendous blow which stretched him on the ground and hurled the knife from his fingers to a considerable distance. If it had not been for the lesser gravity of Mars, he would have been severely injured by the fall. As it was, 
He lay bruised and breathless, staring with ludicrous surprise at the great frond, which had resumed its former position among its fellows, and now displayed no other movement than the singular trembling due to the rhythmic palpitation of the stem to which it was attached. Colton's discomfiture had been noticed by his confreres, and all at once, as if their tongues had been loosed by this happening, a babel of discussion arose among them. It was no longer possible for anyone to doubt the animate or half-animate nature of the growth, and even the outraged and ireful Stilton, who considered that the most sacred laws of scientific probity were being violated, was driven to concede the presence of a biologic riddle not to be explained in terms of orthodox morphology. Gaylard, who did not care to take any great part in this discussion, preferring his own thoughts and conjectures, continued to watch the throbbing growth. He stood a little apart from the others, and nearer than they to the fleshy and multiporous slope of the huge head, and all at once, as he watched, he saw the sprouting of what appeared to be a new tendril from the surface, at a distance of about four feet above the ground. The thing grew like something in a slow-moving picture, lengthening out and swelling visibly, with a bulbous knob at the end. This knob soon became a large, faintly convoluted mass, whose outlines puzzled and tantalized Gaylard, with their intimation of something he had once seen, but could not now remember. There was a bizarre hint of nascent limbs and members, which soon became more definite, and then, with a sort of shock, he saw that the thing resembled a human fetus. His involuntary exclamation of amazement drew others, and soon the whole delegation was grouped about him, watching the incredible development of the new growth with bated breath. The thing had put forth two well-formed legs, which now rested on the ground, supporting with their five-toed feet the upright body, on which the human head and arms were fully evolved, though they had not yet attained adult size. The process continued, and simultaneously a sort of woolly floss began to appear around the trunk, arms, and legs, like the rapid spinning of some enormous cocoon. The hands and neck were left bare, but the feet were covered with a different material, which took on the appearance of green leather. When the floss thickened and darkened to an iron grey, and assumed quite modish outlines, it became obvious that the figure was being clothed in garments such as were worn by the earthmen, probably in deference to human ideas of modesty. The thing was unbelievable, and stranger and more incredible than all else was the resemblance which Gaylard and his companions began to note in the face of the still-growing figure. Gaylard felt as if he were looking into a mirror, for in all essential details the face was his own. The garments and shoes were faithful replicas of those worn by himself, and every limb and part of this Outre being, even to the fingertips, was proportioned like his. The scientists saw that the process of growth was apparently complete. The figure stood with shut eyes and a somewhat blank and expressionless look on its features, like that of a man who has not yet awakened from slumber. It was still attached by a thick tendril 
to the breathing, mountainous node, and this tendril issued from the base of the brain, like an oddly misplaced umbilical cord. The figure opened its eyes and stared at Gaylard with a long, level, enigmatic gaze that deepened his sense of shock and stupefaction. He sustained this gaze with the weirdest feeling imaginable, the feeling that he was confronted by his alter ego, by a doppelganger in which was also the soul or intellect of some alien and vaster entity. In the regard of the cryptic eyes, he felt the same profound and sublime mystery that had looked out from the lake-sized orbs of shining dew or crystal in the plant head. The figure raised its right hand and seemed to beckon to him. Gaylard went slowly forward, till he and his miraculous double stood face to face. Then the strange being placed its hand on his brow, and it seemed to Gaylard that a mesmeric spell was laid upon him from that moment. Almost without his own volition, for a purpose he was not yet permitted to understand, he began to speak, and the figure, imitating his every tone and cadence, repeated the words after him. It was not till many minutes had elapsed that Gaylard realized the true bearing and significance of this remarkable colloquy. Then, with a start of clear consciousness, he knew that he was giving the figure lessons in the English language. He was pouring forth in a fluent, uninterrupted flood the main vocabulary of the tongue, together with its grammatical rules. And somehow, by a miracle of superintellect, all that he said was being comprehended and remembered by his interlocutor. Hours must have gone by during this process, and the Martian sun was now dipping towards the serrate walls of foliage. Dazed and exhausted, Gaylard realized that the long lesson was over, for the being removed its hand from his brow, and addressed him in scholarly, well-modulated English. Thank you. I have learned all that I need to know for the purposes of linguistic communication. If you and your confrères will now attend me, I shall explain all that has mystified you, and declare the reasons for which you have been brought from your own world to the shores of a foreign planet. Like men in a dream, barely crediting the fantastic evidence of their senses, and yet unable to refute or repudiate it, the Earthmen listened while Gaylard's amazing double continued. The being through whom I speak, made in the likeness of one of your own party, is a mere special organ which I have developed, so that I could communicate with you. I, the informing entity, who combine in myself the utmost genius and energy of those two divisions of life which are known to you as the plant and the animal, I, who possess the virtual omniety and immortality of a god, have had no need of articulate speech or formal language at any previous time in my existence. But since I include in myself all potentialities of evolution, together with mental powers that verge upon omniscience, I have had no difficulty whatever in acquiring this new faculty. It was I who constructed, with other special organs that I had put forth for this purpose, the space-flyer that descended upon your planet, 
and then returned to me bearing a delegation, most of whom, I have surmised, would represent the scientific fraternities of mankind. The building of the flyer, and its mode of control, will be made plain when I tell you that I am the master of many cosmic forces beyond the rays and energies known to Tellurian savants. These forces I can draw from the air, the soil, or the ether at will, or can even summon from remote stars and nebulae. The space vessel was wrought from metal which I had integrated from molecules floating at random through the atmosphere, and I used the solar rays in concentrated form to create the temperature at which these metals were fused into a single sheet. The power used in propelling and guiding the vessel is a sort of superelectric energy, whose exact nature I shall not elucidate, other than to say that it is associated with the basic force of gravity, and also with certain radiant properties of the interstellar ether not detectable by any instruments which you possess. I established in the flyer the gravitation of Mars, and supplied it with Martian air and water, and also with chemically created foodstuffs, in order to accustom you during your voyage to the conditions that prevail on Mars. I am, as you may have already surmised, the sole inhabitant of this world. I could multiply myself, if necessary, but so far, for reasons which you will soon apprehend, I have not felt that this would be desirable. Being complete and perfect in myself, I have had no need of companionship with other entities, and long ago, for my own comfort and security, I was compelled to extirpate certain rival plant forms, and also certain animals who resembled slightly the mankind of your world, and who, in the course of their evolution, were becoming troublesome and even dangerous to me. With my two great eyes, which possess an optic magnifying power beyond that of your strongest telescopes, I have studied Earth and the other planets during the Martian nights, and have learned much regarding the conditions that exist upon each. The life of your world, your history, and the state of your civilization have been in many ways an open book to me, and I have also formed an accurate idea of the geological, faunal, and floral phenomena of your globe. I understand your imperfections, your social injustice and maladjustment, and the manifold disease and misery to which you are liable, owing to the dissonant, multiple entities into which the expression of your life-principle has been subdivided. From all such evils and errors, I am exempt. I have attained to well-nigh absolute knowledge and masterdom, and there is no longer anything in the universe for me to fear, aside from the inevitable process of dehydration and desiccation which Mars is slowly undergoing, like all other aging planets. This process I am unable to retard, except in a limited and partial manner, and I have already been compelled to tap the artesian waters of the planet in many places. I could live upon sunlight and air alone, but water is necessary to maintain the elemental properties of the atmosphere, and without it my immortality would fail in the course of time. My giant stems would shrink and shrivel, and my vast innumerable leaves would grow sere for want of the vital humour.
your world is still young, with superabundant seas and streams, and a moisture-laden air. You have more than is requisite of the element which I lack, and I have brought you here, as representative members of mankind, to propose an exchange which cannot be anything but beneficial to you as well as to myself. In return for a modicum of the water of your world, I will offer you the secrets of eternal life and infinite energy, and will teach you to overcome your social imperfections, and to master wholly your planetary environment. Because of my great size, my stems and tendrils which girdle the Martian equator and reach even to the poles, it would be impossible for me to leave my natal world. But I will teach you how to colonize the other planets and explore the universe beyond. For these various ends, I suggest the making of an intermundane treaty and a permanent alliance between myself and the peoples of Earth. Consider well what I offer you, for the opportunity is without example or parallel. In relation to men, I am like a god in comparison with insects. The benefits which I can confer upon you are inestimable, and in return, I ask only that you establish on Earth, under my instruction, certain transmitting stations using a superpotent wavelength, by means of which the essential elements of seawater, minus the undesirable saline properties, can be teleported to Mars. The amount thus abstracted will make little or no difference in your tide levels, or in the humidity of your air, but for me it will mean an assurance of everlasting life. The figure ended its peroration, and stood regarding the earthmen in polite and somewhat inscrutable silence. It waited for their answer. As might have been expected, the emotions with which the delegation members had heard this singular address were far from unanimous in their tenor. All the men were beyond mere surprise or astonishment, for miracle had been piled upon miracle, till their brains were benumbed with wonder, and they had reached the point where they took the creation of a human figure and its endowment with human utterance wholly for granted. But the proposal made by the plant entity through its man-like organ was another matter, and it played upon varying chords in the minds of the scientists, the reporters, the mayor, and the chief of police. Gaylard, who felt himself wholly in accord with this proposition, and more and more thoroughly on rapport with the Martian entity, wished to accede at once and to pledge his own support and that of his fellows to a furthering of the suggested treaty and plan of exchange. He was forced to point out to the Martian that the delegation, even if single-minded in its consent, was not empowered to represent the peoples of Earth in forming the projected alliance, that the most it could do would be to lay the offer before the government of the U.S., and of other terrestrial realms. Half the scientists, after some deliberation, announced themselves as being in favour of the plan, and willing to promote it to the utmost of their ability. The three reporters were also willing to do the same, and they promised, perhaps rashly, that the influence of the world press would be added to that of the renowned savants. Stilton and the other dogmatists of the party, however, were emphatically and even rapidly opposed, and declined to consider the Martians' offer for an instant. 
Any treaty or alliance of the sort they maintained would be highly undesirable and improper. It would never do for the nations of earth to involve themselves in an entanglement of such questionable nature, or to hold commerce of any sort with a being such as the plant monster, which had no rightful biologic status. It was unthinkable that orthodox and sound-minded scientists should lend their advocacy to anything so dubious. They felt, too, that there was a savour of deception and trickery about the whole business, and at any rate it was too irregular to be countenanced, or even to be considered with anything but reprehension. The schism among the savants was rendered final by a hot argument, in which Stilton roundly denounced Gaylard and the other pro-Martians as virtual traitors to humanity, and intellectual Bolshevists whose ideas were dangerous to the integrity of human thought. Gresham and Paulson were on the side of mental law and order, being professionally conservative, and thus the party was about evenly divided between those who favoured accepting the Martian's offer, and those who spurned it with more or less suspicion and indignation. 5. During the course of this vehement dispute, the sun had fallen behind the high ramparts of foliage, and an icy chill, such as might well be looked for in a semi-desolate world with attenuating air, had already touched the pale rose twilight. The scientists began to shiver, and their thoughts were distracted from the problem they had been debating by the physical discomfort of which they were increasingly conscious. They heard the voice of the strange mannequin in the dusk. I can offer you a choice of shelters for the night, and also for the duration of your stay on Mars. You will find the space flyer well lighted and warmed, with all the facilities which you may require. Also, I can offer you another hospitality. Look beneath my foliage, a little to your right, where I am now preparing a shelter no less commodious and comfortable than the vessel, a shelter which will help to give you an idea of my varied powers and potentialities. The earthmen saw that the flyer was brilliantly illuminated, pouring out a gorgeous amethystine radiance from its violet ports. Then, beneath the foliage close at hand, they perceived another and stranger luminosity, which seemed to be emitted, like some sort of radioactive or noctilucent glow, by the great leaves themselves. Even where they were standing, they felt a balmy warmth that began to temper the frigid air, and stepping toward the source of these phenomena, they found that the crowded leaves had lifted and arched themselves into a roomy alcove. The ground beneath was lined with a fabric-like substance of soft hues, deep and elastic underfoot, like a fine mattress. Ewers filled with liquids and platters of foodstuffs were disposed on low tables, and the air in the alcove was gentle as that of the spring night in a subtropic land. Gaylard and the other pro-Martians, filled with profound awe and wonder, were ready to avail themselves at once of the shelter of this thaumaturgic hostelry. But the anti-Martians would have none of it, regarding it as the workmanship of the devil. Suffering keenly from the cold, with chattering teeth and shivering limbs, they promenaded the open glade for some time, 
and at last were driven to seek the hospitable port of the Space Flyer, thinking it the lesser of two evils by some queer twist of logic. The others, after eating and drinking from the mysteriously provided tables, laid themselves down on the mattress-like fabrics. They found themselves greatly refreshed by the liquid in the ewers, which was not water, but some kind of roseate aromatic wine. The food, a literal manner, was more agreeably flavoured than that of which they had partaken during their voyage in the space vessel. In the nerve-wrought and highly excited state that was consequent upon their experiences, none of them had expected to sleep. The unfamiliar air, the altered gravity, the unknown radiations of the exotic soul, as well as their unprecedented journey and the miraculous discoveries and revelations of the day, were all profoundly upsetting and conductive to a severe disequilibration of mind and body. However, Gaylard and his companions fell into a deep and dreamless slumber as soon as they had laid themselves down. Perhaps the liquid and solid refreshments which they had taken may have conduced to this, or perhaps there was some narcotic or mesmeric influence in the air, falling from the vast leaves or proceeding from the brain of the plant lord. The anti-Martians did not fare so well in this respect, and their slumber was restless and broken. Most of them attached the proffered viands in the space-flyer very sparingly, and Stilton, in particular, had refused to eat or drink at all. Doubtless, too, their antagonistic frame of mind was such as to make them more resistant to the hypnotic power of the plant, if such were being exerted. At any rate, they did not share in the benefits conferred upon the others. A little before dawn, when Mars was still shrouded in crepuscular gloom, but slightly lightened by the two small moons, Phobos and Deimos, Stilton arose from the soft couch on which he had tossed in night-long torment, and began to experiment once more, undeterred by his previous failure and discomfiture, with the mechanical controls of the vessel. To his surprise, he found that the odd-shaped keys were no longer resistant to his fingers. He could move and arrange them at will, and he soon discovered the principle of their working, and was able to alleviate and steer the flyer. His confreres had now joined him, summoned by a shout of triumph. All were wide awake, and jubilant with the wild hope of escaping from Mars and the jurisdiction of the plant monster. Thrilling with this hope, and fearing every moment that the Martian would reassert its esoteric control of the mechanism, they rose unhindered from the darkling glade to the alien skies, and headed toward the brilliant green orb of Earth, descried among the unfamiliar constellations. Looking back, they saw the vast eyes of the Martian watching them weirdly from the gloom, like pools of clear and bluish phosphorescence, and they shuddered with the dread of being recalled and recaptured. But, for some inscrutable reason, they were permitted to maintain their earthward course without interference. However, the voyage was fraught with a certain amount of disaster, and Stilton's clumsy pilotage hardly formed an ample substitute for the half-divine knowledge and skill of the Martian. More than once the vessel collided with meteors, none of which, fortunately, were heavy enough to penetrate its hull. 
and when, after many hours, they approached the earth, Stilton failed to secure the proper degree of deceleration. The flyer fell with terrible precipitancy, and was saved from distraction only by dropping into the South Atlantic. The jarred mechanism was rendered unworkable by the fall, and most of the occupants were severely bruised and stunned. After floating at random for days, the coppery bulk was sighted by a northward-going liner, and was towed to port in Lisbon. Here, the scientists abandoned it, and made their way back to America, after detailing their adventures to representatives of the world press, and issuing a solemn warning to all the world peoples against the subversive designs and infamous proposals of the ultraplanetary monster. The sensation created by their return and by the news they brought was tremendous, a tide of profound alarm and panic, due in part to the immemorial human aversion toward the unknown, swept immediately upon the nations, and immense, formless, exaggerated fears were bred like shadowy hydras in the dark minds of men. Stilton and his fellow conservatives continued to foster these fears, and to create with their pronouncements a globe-wide wave of anti-Martian prejudice, of blind opposition and dogmatic animosity. They enlisted on their side as many of the scientific fraternity as they could, that is to say, all those who were minded like themselves, as well as others overawed or subdued by the pressure of authority. They sought also, with much success, to marshal the political powers of the world in a strong league that would ensure the repudiation of any further offers of alliance from the Martian. In all this gathering of inimical forces, this regimenting of earthly conservation and insularity and ignorance, the religious factor, as was inevitable, soon asserted itself. The claim to divine knowledge and power made by the Martian was seized upon by all the various mundane hierarchies, by Christian and Mohammedan, by Buddhist and Parsi and Voodooist alike, as forming a supremely heinous blasphemy. The impiety of such claims, and the menace of a non-anthropomorphic god and type of worship that might be introduced on earth, could not be tolerated for a moment. Caliph and Pope, Lama and Imam, Parson and Mahatma, all made common cause against this ultra-terrestrial invader. Also, the reigning political powers felt that there might be something Bolshevistic behind the offer of the Martian to promote a utopian state of society on earth, and the financial, commercial, and manufacturing interests likewise thought that it might imply a threat to their welfare or stability. In short, every branch of human life and activity was well represented in the anti-Martian movement. In the interim, on Mars, Gaylard and his companions had awakened from their sleep to find that the luminous glow of the arching leaves had given place to the ardent gold of morn. They discovered that they could venture forth with comfort from the alcove, for the air of the glade without had grown swiftly warm beneath the rising sun. Even before they had noticed the absence of the coppery flyer, they were apprised of its departure by the man-organ of the great plant. This being, unlike its human prototypes, was exempt from fatigue, 
and it had remained standing or reclining all night against the fleshy wall to which it was attached. It now addressed the earthmen thus. For reasons of my own, I have made no attempt to prevent the flight of your companions, who with their blindly hostile attitude would be worse than useless to me, and whose presence could only hinder the rapport which should exist between you and myself. They will reach the earth, and will try to warn its peoples against me, and to poison their minds against my beneficent offer. Such an outcome, alas, cannot be avoided, even if I were to bring them back to Mars, or divert their flight by means of my control, and send them speeding forever through the void beyond the worlds. I perceive that there is much ignorance and dogmatism and blind self-interest to be overcome, before the excelling light which I proffer can illumine the darkness of earthly minds. After I have kept you here for a few days, and have instructed you thoroughly in the secrets of my transcendent wisdom, and have imbued you with surprising powers that will serve to demonstrate my omnivalent superiority to the nations of earth, I shall send you back to Worth as my ambassadors, and though you will meet with much opposition from your fellows, my cause will prevail in the end, beneath the infallible support of truth and science. Gaylard and the others received this communication as well as the many that followed it, with supreme respect and semi-religious reverence. More and more they became convinced that they stood in the presence of a higher and ampler entity than man, that the intellect which thus discoursed to them through the medium of a human form was well-nigh inexhaustible in its range and depth, and possessed many characteristics of infinitude and more than one attribute of deity. Agnostic, though most of them were by nature or training, they began to accord a certain worship to this amazing plant-lord, and they listened with an attitude of complete submission, if not of abjection, to the outpourings of cycle-gathered lore, and immortal secrets of cosmic law and life and energy, in which the great being proceeded to instruct them. The illumination thus accorded them was both simple and esoteric. The plant-lord began by dwelling at some length upon the monistic nature of all phenomena, of matter, light, colour, sound, electricity, gravity, and all other forms of irradiation, as well as time and space, which, it said, were only the various perceptual manifestations of a single underlying principle or substance. The listeners were then taught the evocation and control by quite rudimentary chemical media of many forces and rates of energy that had hitherto lain beyond the detection of human senses or instruments. They were taught also the terrific power obtainable by refracting with certain sensitized elements the ultraviolet and infrared rays of the spectrum, which, in a highly concentrated form, could be used for the disintegration and rebuilding of the molecules of matter. They learned how to make engines that emitted beams of distraction and transmutation, and also learned how to tap the illimitable and multifarious energies of the interspatial ether, and how to employ these unknown beams, more potent even than the so-called cosmic rays, in the renewal of human tissues and the conquest of disease and old age. 
Simultaneously with this tuition, the plant lord carried on the building of a new space car, in which the Earthmen were to return to their own planet and preach the Martian Evangel. The construction of this car, whose plates and girders seemed to materialize out of the void air before their very gaze, was a practical lesson in the use of arcanic natural forces. Atoms that would form the requisite alloys were brought together from space by the play of invisible magnetic beams, were fused by concentrated solar heat in a specially refractive zone of atmosphere, and were then moulded into the desired form as readily as the bottle that shapes itself from the pipe of the glassblower. Equipped with this new knowledge and potential masterdom, with a cargo of astounding mechanism and devices made for their use by the plant lord, the pro-Martians finally embarked on their earthward voyage. 6. A week after the abduction of the thirty-five Earthmen from the stadium at Berkeley, the space car containing the Martians' proselytes landed at noon in this same stadium. Beneath the infinitely skillful and easy control of the far-off plant being, it came down without accident, lightly as a bird, and as soon as the news of its arrival had spread, it was surrounded by a great throng, in which the motives of hostility and curiosity were almost equally paramount. Through the denunciation of the dogmatists led by Stilton, the savants and the three reporters beneath the leadership of Gaylard had been internationally outlawed before their arrival. It was expected that they would return sooner or later through the machinations of the plant lord, and a special ruling that forbade them to land on terrene soil under penalty of imprisonment had been made by all the governments. Ignorant of this, and ignorant also of how widespread and virulent was the prejudice against them, they opened the vessel's port and stood in readiness to emerge. Gaylard, going first, paused at the head of the metal stairway, and something seemed to arrest him as he looked down on the milling faces of the mob that had gathered with incredible swiftness. He saw enmity, fear, hatred, suspicion in many of these faces, and in others a gaping and zany-like inquisitiveness, such as might be shown before the freaks of some travelling circus. A small corps of policemen, elbowing and thrusting the rabble aside with officious rudeness, was pushing toward the front, and cries of derision and hatred, gathering by two and threes and uniting to a rough roar, were now hurled at the occupants of the car. "'Damn the pro-Martians! Down with the dirty traitors! Hang the dogs!' An overripe tomato, large and dripping, sailed toward Gaylard, and splashed on the steps at his feet. Hisses and hoots and catcalls added to the roaring bedlam, but above it all, he and his comrades heard a quiet voice that spoke within the car, the voice of the Martian, borne across inestimable miles of ether. Beware, and defer your landing. Resign yourselves to my guidance, and all will be well. Gaylard stepped back as he heard this minatory voice and the valvular port closed quickly behind the folded stairs, just as the policeman who had come to arrest the vessel's occupants broke from the forefront of the throng. P. 
peering out on those hateful faces, Gaylard and his brother Savants beheld an astounding manifestation of the Martian's power. A wall of violet flame, descending from the remote heavens to the ground, seemed to intervene between the car and the crowd, and the policemen, bruised and breathless but uninjured, were hurled backward as if by a great wave. This flame, whose colour changed to blue and green and yellow and scarlet like a sort of aurora, played for hours about the vessel, and rendered it impossible for anyone to approach. Retreating to a respectful distance, awestruck and terrified, the crowd looked on in silence, and the police waited in vain for a chance to fulfil their commission. After a while, the flame became white and misty, and upon it, as upon the bosom of a cloud, a bizarre and mirage-like scene was imprinted, visible alike to the occupants of the car and the throng without. The scene was the Martian landscape in which the central brain of the plant lord was located, and the crowd gasped with astonishment as it met the gaze of the enormous telescopic eyes and saw the unending stems and league-wide masses of semperverant foliage. Other scenes and demonstrations followed, all of which were calculated to impress upon the throng the wonder-working powers and marvellous faculties of this remote being. Pictures that illustrated the historic life of the Martian, as well as the various arcanic natural energies subject to its dominion, followed each other in rapid succession. The purpose of the desired alliance with Earth, and the benefits which would accrue thereby to humanity, were also depicted. The divine benignity and wisdom of this puissant being, its superior organic nature and its vital and scientific supremacy, were made plain to the dullest observer. Many of those who had come to scoff, or had been prepared to receive the pro-Martians and their evangel with scorn and hate and violence, became converted to the alien cause forthwith by these sublime demonstrations. However, the more dogmatic scientists, the true die-hards, as represented by Godfrey Stilton, maintained an adamantine abstractionism, in which they were supported by the officers of law and government, as well as by the presbyters of the various religions. The worldwide dissidence of opinion which soon resulted became the cause of many civil wars or revolutions, and in one or two cases ended in actual warfare between nations. Numerous efforts were made to apprehend or destroy the Martian space car, which, beneath the guidance of its ultra-planetary master, appeared in many localities all over the world, descending suddenly from the stratosphere to perform incredible scientific miracles before the eyes of astonished multitudes. In all quarters of the globe, the mirage-like pictures were flashed on the screen of cloudy fire, and more and more people went over to the new cause. Bombing planes pursued the vessel, and sought to drop their deadly freight upon it, but without success, for whenever the car was endangered, the auroral flames intervened, deflecting and hurling back the exploded bombs, often to the detriment of their launchers. Gaylard and his confreres, with leonine boldness, emerged many times from the car, 
to display before crowds or selected bodies of savants the marvellous inventions and chemical thaumaturgies with which they had been endowed by the Martian. Everywhere the police sought to arrest them. Maddened mobs endeavoured to do them violence. Armed regiments tried to surround them and cut them off from the car. But with an adroitness that seemed no less than supernatural, they contrived always to elude capture, and often they discomfited their pursuers by astonishing displays or evocations of esoteric force, temporarily paralysing the civic officers with unseen rays, or creating about themselves a defensive zone of intolerable heat or transarctic cold. In spite of all these myriad demonstrations, however, the citadels of human ignorance and insularity remained impregnable in many places, deeply alarmed by this ultra-terrene menace to their stability. The governments and religions of Earth, as well as the more conservative scientific elements, rallied their resources in a most heroic and determined effort to stem the incursion. Men of all ages everywhere were conscripted for service in the national armies, and even women and children were equipped with the deadliest weapons of the age for use against the pro-Martians, who, with their wives and families, were classed as infamous renegades to be hunted down and killed without ceremony, like dangerous beasts. The internecine warfare that ensued was the most terrible in human history. Class became divided against class, and family against family. New and more lethal gases than any heretofore employed were devised by chemists, and whole cities or territories were smothered beneath their agonizing pall. Others were blown into skyward flying fragments by single charges of superpotent explosives, and war was carried on by planes, by rocket ships, by submarine, by dreadnoughts, by tanks, by every vehicle and engine of death or distraction that the homicidal ingenuity of man had yet created. The pro-Martians, who had won several victories at first, were now gravely outnumbered, and the tide of battle began to turn against them. Scattered in many lands, they found themselves unable to unite and organize their forces to the same degree as those of their official opponents. Though Gaylard and his devoted confreres went everywhere in the space vessel, aiding and abetting the radicals and instructing them in the use of new weapons and cosmic energies, the party suffered great reverses through the sheer brute preponderance of its foes. More and more it became split up into small bands, hunted and harried, and driven to seek refuge in the wilder or less explored sections of the earth. In North America, however, a large army of the scientific rebels, whose families had been compelled to join them, contrived to hold the antagonists at bay for a while. Surrounded at last, and faced by overwhelming odds, this army was on the verge of a crushing defeat. Gaylard, hovering above the black, voluminous clouds of the battle, in which poisonous gases mingled with the fumes of high explosives, felt for the first time the encroachment of actual despair. It seemed to him, and also to his companions, that the Martian had abandoned them, disgusted perhaps with the bestial horror of it all, 
and the hateful, purblind narrowness and fanatic nescience of mankind. Then, through the smoke-smothered air, a fleet of coppery golden cars descended to land on the battlefront among the Martian adherents. There were thousands of these cars, and from all the entrance ports, which had opened simultaneously, there issued the voice of the planet lord, summoning its supporters and bidding them enter the vessels. Saved from annihilation by this act of Martian providence, the entire army obeyed the command, and as soon as the last man, woman, and child had gone aboard, the ports closed again, and the fleet of space cars, wheeling in graceful and derisive spirals above the heads of the baffled conservatives, soared from the battle-clouds like a flock of reddish-golden birds, and vanished in the noontide heavens, led by the car containing Gaylard's party. At the same time, in all portions of the world where the little bands of heroic radicals had been cut off and threatened with capture or distraction, other cars descended in like manner, and carried away the pro-Martians and their families, even to the last unit. These vessels joined the main fleet in mid-space, and then all continued their course beneath the mysterious piloting of the Plant Lord, flying at supercosmic velocity through the star-surrounded gulf. Contrary to the anticipations of the mundane exiles, the vessels were not drawn toward Mars, and it soon became evident that their objective was the planet Venus. The voice of the Martian Speaking athwart the eternal ether, made the following announcement. In my infinite wisdom, my supreme foreprescience, I have removed you from the hopeless struggle to establish on earth the sovereign light and truth which I offer. You alone I have found worthy, and the moiety of mankind, who have refused salvation with hatred and contumely, preferring the natal darkness of death and disease and ignorance in which they were born, must be left henceforward to their inevitable fate. You, as my loyal and well-trusted servants, I am sending forth to colonize beneath my tutelage a great continent on the planet Venus, and to found amid the primal exuberance of this new world a super-scientific nation. The fleet soon approached Venus and circled the equator for a great distance in the steam-thick atmosphere, through which nothing could be descried other than a hot and over-fuming ocean, close to the boiling point, which seemed to cover the entire planet. Here, beneath the never-setting sun, intolerable temperatures prevailed everywhere, such as would have parboiled the flesh of a human being exposed directly to the semi-aqueous air. Suffering even in their insulated cars from this terrific heat, the exiles wondered how they were to exist in such a world. At least, however, their destination came in view, and their doubts were resolved. Nearing the nightward side of Venus, which is never exposed to daylight, in a latitude where the sun slanted far behind them as over arctic realms, they beheld, through thinning vapours, an immense tract of land the sole continent amid the planetary sea. This continent was covered by rich jungles, containing a flora and fauna similar to those of pre-glacial eras on the earth, calamites and cycads and fern plants of unbelievable luxuriance revealed themselves to the earthmen. 
and they saw everywhere the great brainless reptiles, the megalosaurs, plesiosaurs, labyrinthodons, and pterodactyls of Jurassic times. Beneath the instruction of the Martian, before landing, they slew these reptiles, incinerating them completely with infrared beams, so that not even their carcasses would remain to taint the air with putrefactive effluvia. When the whole continent had been cleared of its noxious life, the cars descended, and emerging, the colonists found themselves in a terrain of unequalled fertility, whose very soil seemed to pulsate with primordial vigours, and whose air was rich with ozone and oxygen and nitrogen. Here the temperature, though still subtropic, was agreeable and balmy, and through the use of protective fabrics provided by the Martian, the Earthmen soon accustomed themselves to the eternal sunlight and intense ultraviolet radiation. With the super-knowledge at their disposal, they were able to combat the unknown, highly pernicious bacteria peculiar to Venus, and even to exterminate such bacteria in the course of time. They became the lords of a salubrious climate, dowered with four mild and equable seasons by the slight annual rotation of the planet, but having one eternal day, like the mythic isles of the blessed, beneath a low and undeparting sun. Beneath the leadership of Gaylard, who remained in close rapport and continual communication with the plant lord, the great forests were cleared in many places. Cities of lofty and ethereal architecture, lovely as those of some transstellar Eden, builded by the use of force beams, began to rear their graceful turrets and majestic cumuli of domes above the gigantic calamites and ferns. Through the labours of the Terrene exiles, a truly utopian nation was established, giving allegiance to the plant lord as to some tutelary deity, a nation devoted to cosmic progress, to scientific knowledge, to spiritual tolerance and freedom, a happy, law-abiding nation, blessed with millennial longevity, and exempt from sorrow and disease and error. Here, too, on the shores of the Venusian Sea, were builded the great transmitters that sent through interplanetary space in ceaseless waves of electronic radiation the water required to replenish the dehydrated air and soil of Mars, and thus to ensure for the plant being a perpetuity of godlike existence. In the meanwhile, on Earth, unknown to Gaylard and his fellow exiles, who had made no effort to communicate with the abandoned world, an amazing thing had occurred, a final proof of the virtual omnipotence and all-inclusive sapience of the Martian. In the great vale of Kashmir, in northern India, there descended one day from the clear heavens a mile-long seed, flashing like a huge meteor, and terrifying the superstitious Asian peoples, who saw in its fall the portent of some tremendous disaster. The seed rooted itself in this valley, and before its true nature had been ascertained, the supposed meteorite began to sprout and send forth on all sides a multitude of mammoth tendrils which burst immediately into leaf. It covered both the southward plains and the eternal snows and rock of the Hindu Kush 
and Himalayas with their gigantic verdure. Soon, the Afghan mountaineers could hear the explosion of its leaf buds amid their passes, echoing like distant thunder. And, at the same time, it rushed like a juggernaut upon central India, spreading in all directions and growing with the speed of express trains, the tendrils of the mighty vine proceeded to enmesh the Asian realms, overshadowing vales, peaks, hills, plateaus, deserts, cities, and seaboards with its titan leaves. It invaded Europe and Africa, and then, bridging Bering Straits, it entered North America and ran southward, ramifying on all sides, till the whole continent— and also South America, even to Tierra de Fuego, had been buried beneath the masses of insuperable foliage. Frantic efforts to stay the progress of the plant were made by armies with bombs and cannon, with lethal sprays and gases, but all in vain. Everywhere humanity was smothered beneath the vast leaves, like those of some omnipresent upus which emitted a stupefying and narcotic odour that conferred upon all who had inhaled it a swift euthanasia. Soon the plant had netted the whole globe, for the seas offered little or no barrier to its full-grown stems and tendrils. When the process of growth was complete, the anti-Martian moiety of the human race had joined the uncouth monsters of prehistoric time in that limbo of oblivion to which all superseded and outdated genera have gone. But, through the divine clemency of the plant lord, the final death that overtook the diehards was no less easy than irresistible. Stilton and a few of his associates contrived to evade the general doom for a while by fleeing in a rocket ship to the Antarctic plateau. Here, as they were congratulating themselves on their escape, they saw, far off on the horizon, the rearing of the swift stems, beneath whose foliage the ice and snow appeared to melt away in rushing torrents. These torrents soon became a diluvial sea, in which the last dogmatists were drowned. Only in this way did they elude the euthanasia of the great leaves, which had overtaken all their fellows.' 